In a world that is increasingly connected and complex, how do we ensure our schools are relevant? Today, Diane and I will share some of the things we've learned in a decade of working together connecting classrooms. And welcome to episode eight of the Education for a Better World podcast. I'm Mike Soskel. And I'm Diane Smokorowski. Each week, we will bring you conversations with some of the most dynamic thought leaders in education. This week's episode is sponsored by GoToScience, a tool that allows our youngest learners the opportunity to learn by going on adventures without leaving their classroom. We know that education will be the driving force for a bright, optimistic future. On each show, We'll introduce you to innovative ideas, we'll stretch your thinking, and help you see ways to empower students to affect positive change in the world. We are thrilled that you are coming along with us on this journey. Let's dream big. So Diane, we have no guests today, so welcome to the show, Diane and Mike. <laughs> I love it. But here's the best part of this today, right? We get to like just banter back and forth a little bit you know it's kind of nice to catch up with you buddy it is i know and you know for those those listeners who have been listening to us uh we have been blessed with some incredible guests and i've learned so much from all of them but i think it's time to really just get to know diane and i a little bit today and what makes us tick and uh, how this whole thing got started so diane uh why don't you tell me how tell me about your journey in education like how did you get started with global learning and all the things that you're really passionate about well, actually, my global learning connection started in about 2003, where I was doing research for global connections with travel buddy projects. So these are things that started in Australia, where you had stuffed animals that were to work on literacy with primary children. You have a stuffed animal that would go from one classroom to another, and it would stay for six weeks or up to a semester. So it was a little bit deeper than Flat Stanley, where you know it just hops around. This actually is an ambassador from one classroom to another. And a lot of the global collaboration leading kind of work in the world was happening in Australia at that time, or at least in the Commonwealth countries. So I, uh, this is back in message forum boards. So we're going back in time just a little <laughs> bit. You know, websites where they'd have a character that would spin around in the bottom, you know, it says, you got lost. We're going way back into internet history. But you would see, you know, here our class has a travel buddy. We're looking for another class. And you'd see these message boards pop in. And I was fascinated. I jumped in. I had a, it was actually a little Mickey Mouse dressed as a air, an airline pilot. And I had a couple of them and found other classrooms in Australia, in South Africa and Canada. It, like I said, it was pretty much the Commonwealth countries that were involved in that time. And I sent these to be ambassadors from the United States to these other countries. And it didn't take but about three emails that I was getting back from South Africa thinking, I'm getting email from South Africa. That's crazy cool. And I was hooked from that point forward. Where did it start from you? I've always believed in service learning, that that was important. And a lot of our service projects early on were focused in our local community because uh, it was difficult to connect outside of outside of our small community. And so we do things like learn fractions by making a Thanksgiving dinner for a local family in need and those kinds of things. And then somewhere along the way, I started, same, same as you, using email 
to connect with people outside. And I remember that uh, at one point we were spending a whole lot of money on postage, sending like newspaper clippings from our community uh, and some student work to friends in Nepal. Uh, and then they were sending things back to us. And around the time that Skype became free and easy to use, we started expanding those, uh, those emails and those, uh, those packages that we were sending. And, and we started doing things virtually where we actually got to meet face to face. Uh, and once that started, it just kind of took off from there. And uh, the, the world of social media uh, allowed us to connect with teachers and, and students all over the world. And uh, the more we did it, the more my students were engaged and saw opportunities to learn and, and have a great time while they were doing it and meet new friends and uh, be exposed to different cultures. And, uh, you know, things just exploded. And that's what brought us together was the social media. So you had actually been doing global learning before I met you? Uh, yeah, but it was, it was uh, mostly analog uh, back then. Um, my, when we met on Plurk, that was really the beginning of my, my steps into using social media to connect with teachers in different, uh, in different areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that was really, you know, and it was probably those interactions on Plurk that opened my eyes to what was possible. Playing Mystery Skype was probably the first, I don't remember for sure, but that was probably the first experience that I had connecting my students. Uh, and it still is just a great way to get started if you've never done it before. I agree. And my first Skype call was in 2006. Skype was a baby product at the time. And we had a class in Australia that we were doing climate change research, where we were using a wiki, a PB Works wiki. Like we are going back in time. Yep, my yep, yep. Um, I, 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 we, had a, we had a class wiki space where we used to post all kinds of stuff on there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think Google Docs revolutionized everything. <laughs> but when we were doing these, this wiki space, or the PB works, we would post in the day and leave school about 5 p.m. in the evening is when the Australians would come to school, 9 a.m. their time. They would open up the wiki and they would continue the research and we would just go back and forth and leave messages in text to our partner classroom. So we had like uh, three Americans tied with two Australians and we did that with six, eight groups. And all of this was going on at time at the same time. Well, I would Skype in and talk with the the teacher when we were starting to design this, it was talk about a crazy opportunity. If we were going to try and match standards from two different parts of the world to make something for both kids to be able to do. And then I would Skype in uh, to their classroom. It was about 9 PM at night and I was in my pajamas because Skype didn't have a lot of video capability at that time and would talk to these students and answer questions and it was you know class time for them so that's kind of where it began but then when we met in uh, 1998 clerk really was make it was the easy 2008. button 2008. Yeah. yeah 2008 that's what i said 2008 <laughs> <laughs> um but that's finally when things were like this is not hard to find friends i was going to all of these message boards and it was hard now we were kicked off straight away. So talk about the project that we did first together. Yeah, so uh, I believe you, you were uh, teaching eighth grade language arts at the time. Right. And you were looking for someone to talk to your students um, about the Holocaust. I think you were looking for a Holocaust survivor at the time. Yeah. And when I saw that on Plurk, what I offered was I said, you know, my grandfather uh, Skypes in with his great grandchildren all the time with my kids. And, uh, you know, he loves to talk about his time during World War II. He wasn't a Holocaust survivor, but he was a Jewish soldier who actually liberated uh, concentration camps. Uh, and I, I think I asked you, you know, would your students be interested in talking to him instead? And the answer was most definitely. We had a common space 
to bring every eighth grader, whether they were one of my students or not, out into this common space, and they all heard his story. And I have to tell you, it was, it was quite cute at the same time, because your grandfather and grandmother were setting up a Skype call, but they had the camera turned 90 degrees. So for almost an hour, we looked at them at 90 degrees with our heads turned, but he wore his uniform from World War II and showed all of his artifacts and told his stories, and it was life-changing in that classroom. And with that call, and I had done a couple others that year with like the CEO of the Motion Picture Association of America with that same class, and I thought, I will never teach the same way again. There is something magical that's happening here that is not possible without this. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And one of my, one of my um, most prized possessions in my classroom, uh, my grandfather passed away a couple of years ago, but I have some of the letters that your students wrote to him um, after that call. And, uh, you know, they, they sit in one of my desk drawers and I know that they're there and it's just a nice way for me to remember my grandfather and, uh, and how awesome he was. And, um, you know, yeah, so that was, that was special. And I, and I think of, you know, thinking of my grandparents, I think of the camera turned sideways. Um, and I know, you know, towards the end of my, uh, my grandfather's life, uh, you know, he, like a lot of people when they get older had trouble hearing. Uh, and so there would be these incredible arguments between my grandparents, like, you know, Murray, do you want some great, great grapefruit? You know, and then, uh, you know, the answer would be something like, I haven't read the newspaper yet. <laughs> you know? and then, right? So I can just I can just see as they were setting up the Skype call, you know, something like that going on in front of your eighth grade students, which I'm sure was hilarious. It, it was kind of fun. And your grandmother was walking in the background and Murray, don't forget to tell them this. And <laughs> It was really special. And I think that's what solidified our collaboration time together. We've been working ever since. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, so many incredible things have, uh, have come out of that. I think of the global projects that we've done uh, from the Global Kid Wish pro Project, where uh, for New Year's, kids were able to share their, uh, their wishes for a better world and how they would, um, how they would go about making that happen. Uh, the Virtual Valentine's Project, which is still going on, where kids get to uh, you know, connect with another class and create some kind of uh, Valentine using virtual tools with their other class. Uh, there's been so many global connections that have happened, and it has just solidified my belief that uh, as, we, as the world becomes more global and interactive, that school needs to also in order to prepare our kids for, for what's coming next after they graduate. You know, that's interesting. We and I have also talked about how this Generation Z, one of the characteristics of them is they want to be connected globally. Yet the research shows that less than 20,000 teachers around the planet use video conferencing in the classroom. Is this something, I mean, what, what resonates with you on that? Yeah, so in, in the book that we published back in March, uh, myself and five other Global Teacher Prize finalists, uh, we looked at a lot of different uh, studies and a lot of different data around Generation Z and uh, global connection and what's going on right now. And one of the things we found, and I believe it was a Varkey Foundation study that said this, is that students now more than ever are uh, desperately wanting to make an impact on their world uh, and to do it outside of the, just their local community, uh, to do it on a broader scale. Uh, and I love, you know, we had Ada McKim as our first guest talking about the, uh, the Teach SDGs movement. Uh, and she, she explained how this can happen in your classroom so well. But I think global, global connection is such a big part of this because it allows kids to see outside the, um, their own society. And we know that whatever society you're in builds certain biases into you. Um, you don't realize that it's happening, but you're influenced by, by everything that's going on around you. And until you see beyond that, 
you don't really get a, an entire picture of, of what's going on in the world. You know, one of the things that struck me is we, we still have 17% of the world's population is still living without electricity. And so as we're talking about global connection and how do we make this happen and, you know, our class, classrooms have the infrastructure to connect, there are still, you know, many, many villages and places where, you know, even electricity is something that hasn't been brought to that village yet. And so when we look at equity issues, you know, technology is driving those equity gaps further and further apart. And school has to be used to teach kids how to close those gaps with technology um, so that we don't have the, these runaway gaps, you know, as, as each generation goes forward uh, with technological innovation. That's well said. Um, when you talk about this inequity and what technology is not being brought, because I, I believe that internet connection is a civil right, not just a luxury item for people to have. And, you know, I think about Cherry's Children's Center there in the Kibera slum and how we connected with them six years ago. And they were very much a small school, four grades, all facing different walls to have class, but they were very much a 21st century school, connecting with people all over the world. They discovered that if they could put a SIM card or some sort of internet card in the side of a machine, they could open the world of their classroom. Fast forward six years, now they have a new school that's expanding because their network is helping not just them, but they're also helping others to build this collaborative change for education around the world. It's phenomenal. Before we continue the show, we'd like to take a few seconds to share with you the sponsor that's made this episode possible. If you've listened to the show before, you know how much Diane and I love GoToScience. Children that learn by going on adventures with Beth and Curtis, conducting experiments, and leading their own investigations are not just learning science. They're being scientists, and they're learning literacy, numeracy, and communication skills along the way. This is why we're excited to announce that we will be giving away another year-long subscription to go to science to a lucky listener. Here's how to win. Between now and February 1st, subscribe to the Education for a Better World podcast on either iTunes or Google Play. Then tag us and GoToScience in a tweet. And then share with us why you want a free GoToScience subscription. Then in early February, we'll choose at random someone and give them a one-year subscription to GoToScience. It's that easy. Good luck. If you've listened to our other shows, you know that Diane and I are really passionate about helping students and teachers create amazing learning experiences in school. That's why we've created a brand new workshop that will empower your teachers to help students learn more. By more, we mean that the learning will be motivating, organic, relevant, and experiential. No matter what age or content area you teach, the learn more philosophy and the strategies we'll share will help your teachers connect incredible learning experiences to their curriculum. Students will be engaged in learning like never before and they'll understand how powerful they can be when they use their learning to impact the world. By empowering students and teachers, we can truly use education to make the world a better place. To send us an inquiry about our Learn More workshops or any of the other keynote or workshop offerings that Diane and I can provide, visit the podcast website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, the number four, betterworld.com. We hope to see you in person soon. Now let's return to the show.
Yeah, one of the things that I learned from, from our interactions with Cherry was the importance of service projects being a two-way street. When we first connected with them, uh, it actually started with a song exchange. We were preparing for a St. Patrick's Day concert, and instead of singing to an empty cafe gymatorium uh, during our practice, we decided to sing on camera for the kids at Cherry and have them sing back to us. And after the call, my students came up to me with tears in their eyes, and they said, we see the conditions that they're learning in, and it doesn't look like our school. We need to do something to help them. Uh, that was an amazing experience. You know, we, we love how they sang. We need to do something to help them. And I put it back on my students and I said, okay, first of all, what do you want to do to help them that is not fundraising? Because I want you to think deeper than that. And second of all, what are you going to ask for in return? Because we want them to know that, that we value them as much as they value us. Indeed. Uh, and what my students came back with was this incredible distance teaching project where we would use the math materials that we have in our school that they didn't have in the Kabira slum to teach my students taught short math videos, uh, two or three minutes long, uh, so that the kids in, in Chiri could, in, in Kenya could uh, learn math conceptually the same way that my students were in the classroom. And in return, they asked those children, uh, the Chiri children, to teach them Swahili, because there's not a whole lot of foreign languages spoken in my community. Uh, and that project was incredible, and it developed a relationship between the two students that I didn't anticipate. Um, it was something that I hadn't seen before in, in the global connections that we had made. And that, and that springboarded into Project Link that came afterwards. It was such a small thing to connect with them. I mean, people ask me all the time, how do you find these connections? Well, they had posted a small, very brief lesson on Skype in the classroom that says, let's talk about culture. And they had photographs of the Maasai tribe and they had pictures of animals. And I, I'm talking seconds that I almost didn't click on it. It was just seconds. And I thought, no, there's, I need, there's something about this. I need to connect with that. And it's just opened a world forward of change for for me and for them. Um, I, I, they were doing amazing things already. It just allowed me to peer in and see the good things that they're doing. And what I found was really powerful is that we could have several teachers uh, we had several state teachers of the year. You were on the call with us on that one as well. And they wanted to talk about how do you teach? How do we teach? And what resonated with me is when you asked them, what is the biggest problem you face in education? Do you remember what you said? You said poverty. Mm. Poverty is what I face every day as all teachers do. And they said, that's exactly the same thing that we face here. Yeah. And it resonated so much with me to say, we're all educators, no matter what geographic location we're in, we all want to see kids be awesome. Yeah. What's really impressed me about their change in their school, um, and you mentioned they have this beautiful new school that they're building right now, is how that came about over the last six years. And it was really through reciprocal relationships. It wasn't them going out and asking for money. It was them offering cultural exchanges to schools around the world that uh, that were interested in learning about Kenyan culture, and you know they like you said they they would put their uh, their lessons up on Skype in the classroom, and other schools would just Skype in and and learn from their students. Right? You know, you wouldn't think that that kids in this uh, the poorest and largest slum in Africa would be teaching other kids in affluent areas around the world, but that's exactly what happened, and because of the relationships that were built. Um, just like my students wanted to help in some way, others wanted to help them. And, and that's, you know, it was very much a both schools were getting something out of that exchange. Um, and it's just, it, it warms my heart to see 
that those kids that I love so much and, and, you know, having spent time actually with them at the school for a week, um, that they actually have this beautiful new learning environment that, uh, that they're going to make magic happen in. And I'm going to guess that several of them choose to become teachers themselves someday. I hope so. They'd be amazing at it. <laughs> I, can, I can picture them in my mind right now, the ones that I was with in the classroom. Uh, you know, they have the personality to, to be excellent teachers someday. It, absolutely. So let me ask you this. You know, we've been doing this now for quite a while, 10 years, and with working together. What are some things that you've seen in global learning that has impressed you over the years? And what do you think we still need to do? What work still needs to be done? Well, I'll, I'll take the last question first. We need to transition from uh, global connection being something that is fun in the classroom uh, to teachers using it much more intentionally to drive uh, both learning and also uh, empowering students to, to get involved in social issues. And, and I don't mean that, that the teacher should be the one that is identifying those social issues. I, th I think that's uh, problematic for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it's, it's not very empowering for students. And number two, it probably puts you in an area where um, you can get in trouble because there's political ramifications for that. Um, right. what, you what you really want to do is just expose your kids to as much as you can and then wait for them to say the magic words, right? And it's the same words that I heard from my kids after that call, that first call with, uh, with Cherry. You know, we should do something about that. When you hear those words, your students are telling you that they are recognizing injustice and equity, um, you know, some kind of problem in the world that they are passionate about solving. And your job at that point is to drop everything you're doing in your classroom, all of those boring textbook lessons, right? You know, we just heard from Matt Miller on the last episode, how we should ditch our textbooks and, and look to make learning more authentic. You know, get out of the textbook and find ways to embed the curriculum that you have to teach into the thing that your students want to learn. Uh, and when you do that, they will never forget that learning. And, you know, I know, you know, there's a lot of, like you just mentioned, there's a lot of poverty in my community. And sometimes kids come to school without hope because of the, the family situations that they see at home. But when they are involved in using the learning that happens in school to build a bridge for a community in, uh, in a rural area of Africa um, so that kids can go to school, or, you know, last year developing hydroponics units or aquaponics units where uh, food could be grown with 90% less water because the community that they had just spoken to uh, was dealing with climate change and famine um, you know, in their community. When students get involved in those kinds of projects and they know that they are making the world a better place and that they're helping others, that is something that sticks with them and they see themselves differently. They see how powerful they are and how much they matter and they never forget that learning. Exactly. And I, I'm going to say maybe part of this is because this is a very global group of young people. They're, they're the first ones who had FaceTime, some of these from the moment that they were born. They've been able to talk to grandma when they were on iPads way back when some of them. And this is the first group that doesn't just have a neighborhood. If you think about how transportation has evolved in industry in the last 150 years, you did not leave mostly your neighborhood unless you could walk, right? And then eventually you have trains and eventually planes and all that. But that stopped at a certain point until you discovered that you could open up a computer and talk to anybody anywhere. They see themselves as a part of a bigger community than just the neighborhood. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this question off of, off of that then. You know, there's a flip side to that also, being hyper-connected and being able to talk to anyone at any time. And that's that sometimes we don't foster the relationships that are right in front of us. 
right? And in and our classrooms, you know, we, we have students that are more interested in texting with someone who's not in the classroom than working with the person who's next to them to make magic happen, you know, right there. So how have you ensured that those relationships are still getting built when you're working with kids? I think it's how you set up the conversations, even in the call. If we have no purpose for the call except, hey, how are you? It's going to be awkward. It's not going to be meaningful or... Um, and as much as I love mystery Skype, it's a great entryway to start conversations, but that's kind of a surface level entry. If we're going to have a conversation that is deep and rich and meaningful, you have to scaffold that in the classroom, just like you would have to scaffold that in a virtual space. We just have to be intentional about what is the outcome we want to have happen. If you want students to build relationships, then Maybe you start with a mystery Skype to get that awkward piece out of it. Maybe we do paper, rock, scissors. Maybe we do a song exchange. Maybe we do some sort of improv game across just to kind of break the ice. And then after that, you can jump in and say, okay, this is what we're working on. This is what we're concerned about. This is the questions that we have. And what I've noticed is, especially when we have experts, I think the easiest thing that you can do as a teacher is find somebody who works in a career field around the content area that you're, you're working on because there's somebody who's passionate about anything. Uh, I've been asked by some second grade students that they want to talk to a marketing strategist because they're starting an economics unit and doing a small business kind of uh, mini unit. Well, there's somebody who does that, right? <laughs> so I can get somebody to talk to them. But when we have those kind of connections where the students can ask questions to an adult or to another person who has the information that they need, we are now teaching them that it's okay to be curious. Yeah, I had that exact experience in my classroom today. Uh, we connected with Dr. Dean Hines, who is, um, so he's, he's an amazing guy. He's an astronomer uh, and he has this, uh, this passion for astronomy and space that rubs off on, on anyone he speaks to. Uh, and my students love connecting with him. My fourth graders connect with him every year. Today he went and, uh, you know, we were studying the solar system. So he showed us different um, pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope and from different uh, spacecraft that had gone to the different planets and talked about, you know, some of the unique features of the different planets. But the question that my students had afterwards, th there was a spacecraft called Cassini, which went and studied Saturn's moons. And at the end of its lifespan, um, they were, you know, scientists were worried that, they, that um, there might be life on some of Saturn's moons and that there could be Earth germs on Cassini. And so instead of letting it um, just kind of float into orbit and possibly crash into one of the moons, uh, they turned the spacecraft and crashed it into Saturn um, and took some pictures along the way, which is, which is really cool, right? But, but the question that my students asked was like, why? Why would it be so bad to contaminate those other planets? And what an amazing question, right? Like how much deeper is that than your, you know, your normal, okay, can you, can you name the eight planets in order, you know, starting with closest <laughs> to the sun, right? You know, there's, there's this passion that rubs off on, on, kids when they're talking to someone who is passionate about their job. And there is, you know, every, every bit of content that we have in our schools that we're teaching has some kind of application outside of school. So find the person who is applying it and who loves doing that, and they will light fires of passion in your, in your students. You know, I've always said that I would at some point need to build a passion wall. Because if you can get someone to talk to your students who is passionate about whatever it is that they want to talk about with students, you see this change in their face. And one of these days, I'm going to remember to have my camera ready on my phone, and I'm just snapping those photos. And it usually starts with a question like this. Why do you love what you do? 
Mm. And the person on the other end generally sits up a little taller and their eyes light up and they're like, do you want to know how cool this is? And it could be something as, as dry as data analysis. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm wearing, I'm right now wearing my pie rate t-shirt, right? There's nothing wrong with data analysis, right? Don't, don't be knocking numbers. <laughs> okay, maybe it's as dry as p tuning a piano. I don't know, right? Well, that's probably kind of a cool joke. <laughs> you start snapping photos of people. And then let's start building a wall, a bulletin board, because I, bulletin boards can be kind of boring over time. And maybe some a middle school teacher who has time for such things. But <laughs> I put it up on the wall of all these people with passion. And then when you see students say, you know what, I don't get this, I don't like this. We recognize apathy real quickly, but passion is a harder thing to recognize. We already have emojis for happy, sad, questioning, frustrated, face palm when we really mess up, but there's not one for passion. Yeah. That's just like, I love what I do. We put hearts up, but that's not quite the same. What if we started building a wall of passion faces? And when students start to light up, you're like, dude, look on the wall. You look like one of those people. And I'm like, maybe I do like this. We yeah. might actually inspire some students to try something new. I, you know, I've never thought of that before, but it's such a fantastic idea. I, I think of even, you know, one of my favorite things uh, that happened when I was Pennsylvania Teacher of the Year is that I started getting asked to speak to pre-service teachers more and more. Um, and a lot of times because Pennsylvania is a pretty big state, I couldn't get to um, to the college that was asking me to speak. So I would, I would do exactly what we do in my classroom right here. I would Skype in with those different pre-service teacher classes. And I'll tell you, the same thing happened to me, right? Like, I'm passionate about what I do. I love being a teacher. And I was able to share that with them. And I'm sure that they saw me sit up a little bit straighter and uh, have that little sparkle in my eyes when I got to talk about the cool things that I do in my classroom. Uh, I, I love the idea of a passion wall and, uh, and being intentional about identifying passion in students when we see them light up. Yeah. And when you stop and think about it, you ask students, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think that is such a loaded question because they're going to answer with one of three things. I'm going to be a professional athlete. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a veterinarian. These are engineers. Sometimes we get the engineer. <laughs> but how many different careers are there in engineering? Hundreds. Right. But they just think I'm going to be an engineer. Really, it translates to I want to be rich. Yeah. So <laughs> well, you know that when, when my kids say that they want to be an engineer, I have a really good answer to that. I tell them, you know, you don't want to just be an engineer. You want to be an Imagineer. So that way you can work at Disney and get me free yes. park admission. That's right. That's, that's my answer. You know, it's all about I'm totally stealing that. <laughs> no, I'm stealing it. There you go. Right? No. Don't forget but, your science teacher when you grow up. That's you know. <laughs> exactly. But think about, you know, I'm just thinking of some of the engineer people that we have had connections with in Skype. We've had somebody who was in the, in the um, moon prize for Google and they built a lunar rover. And we've talked to him two or three different times. That's a whole different kind of engineer. Uh, Stacey Ryan, a friend of ours, she's had people who work at analytics at Amazon. That's a different kind of engineer. What are some of the ones you've connected with? Uh, we've, we've connected with uh, definitely um, computer science engineers who are, who are building video games and stuff like that um, to, to show coding. Um, We've electrical engineers, uh, we've talked to uh, mechanical engineers, uh, and one of the coolest ones was, I, I forget what company, um, but they worked on the packaging, on, on building packages for, um, like, you know, what, how to make the box that holds the, 
you know, widgets that you're sending. So if, you know, the iPhone is coming and, and has to be shipped out, you know, someone has to design that box for mm -hmm. how the iPhone sits in there perfectly. And so that was kind of a cool combination. Um, and that was back when I was a math teacher. So um, we were talking about like spatial relations and the, um, you know, the mathematics behind all of those things. So, you know, and, and that's, that's the other thing that, that teachers should know is if you are a language arts teacher, like connecting with an engineer is still awesome for you because you can read and write and research about anything, right? If you are a math teacher and you're talking with an author, there is still a math component to what that author does. Um, so, you know, don't start with the content, start with the experience, give your kids the amazing experience. And then it's your job as a professional teacher to figure out how the content fits into that experience. So, you know, just find awesome people to talk to and make it work. Uh, that goes exactly, this is the reason why we're friends. I just know it. But, and I'm pretty sure we're family somehow back in some way. <laughs> we're going to find it one day. We'll connect it. But it's these three questions that I ask myself when I design lessons. One is what do I need to assess? Two, what experiences do I want my students to have? Meaning what do I want them to remember when they're 40, not for that test on Friday? And third, who do they need to talk to? Yeah. Is that how the formula you go or do you add another element? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I don't know that I have it that formally thought out. Um, but usually what happens is um, either I'm on social media and I find someone really cool and I'm like, oh, my kids need to talk to this person. And we set it up and then I look at my content and say, OK, what's coming up and how can I make sure that the conversation gets into these areas so that we can that we can meet that. Um, or, you know, sometimes it's just a, like, we haven't done anything cool in a couple of weeks. Let's find something cool for kids. Let me find someone awesome for them to talk to. Uh, that happens sometimes. Um, but, you know, once, once we have that call scheduled, uh, it is very intentional thinking about how we're going to use that as a learning experience. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the projects that have come out of those calls that I've become known for, the, the global service learning projects that, uh, that we've done, have not been the intention of the call. Right. There was some kind of other learning intention. I, I think of, you know, we talked about mystery Skype before um, we had a mystery animal Skype and it was my first uh, my first year of teaching fourth grade science. And I knew that I needed to teach animal classification, but really didn't know how yet. <laughs> and I was feeling this incredible imposter syndrome, thinking I should be way better than I was uh, in my classroom. And we set up a Skype call with uh, the hip hip Africa Academy in rural Western Kenya. And it was just just a call where they, they chose a lion as their animal, but we didn't know it. And we chose, I think, a penguin. And the kids went back and forth asking yes or no questions to try and guess the other's animal. Uh, and after the call, right, so that was great. That was, that was the, um, you know, animal classification piece. But afterwards, I asked the school director, Livingston Kagode, I said, can you take us around your school? Livingston showed my students uh, this bridge that cut their village in half. And students from one side of the village were not allowed to go to school until they were in third grade uh, because the bridge was too dangerous. And my students instantly at the end of that call said, Mr. Soskal, we need to do something about that. And they spent months designing bridges first out of paper and then out of cardboard and testing them and using the design process to, to make them fail um, so they could make their designs better. And eventually they ended up designing a bridge for that community uh, and then spending time with their fifth grade teachers over the course of the year fundraising for it uh, to have their design built. And it's one of the, the coolest things I've ever seen in my career was getting to walk into that fifth grade classroom uh, in June, the, the last week of school, and tell them, look, here are the pictures. Your bridge got built and now every kid in that village can go to school. Um, that's right. That, that, my intention was not to build a bridge, but it was to give them an experience that they otherwise couldn't have here in Newfoundland. Uh, and then awesomeness sprung out of that.
Yes, it's, there's a little serendipity that kind of happens along the way, I think, too. Now, let me switch it just a little bit, because this is something we're starting to do a little bit more, is embrace this idea of global connections for professional learning on in-service days. So I have a group of teachers that are in a leadership academy. They're with me for two years, and we meet you know, periodically together. And what I've been doing now is finding an awesome teacher for them to hear their story. And we've talked with, oh, Katie Smith from Minnesota. In, in the state of Minnesota, they have teachers that are part of the school district to work with birth to age five, which is not something we have here at all. But she was telling her teacher story. We had a couple of kindergarten teachers in the room and a pre-K teacher. She, they were just, oh my goodness, this is like the best thing ever. I'm finally being able to talk with somebody that meets my needs. And we've had Darina Sackman come in and talk with them and talk about her ELL stories in Florida. Have you done anything similar to that? What we've done is a lot of showing teachers how to use global learning by allowing them to have the same kind of experiences that students would have in the classroom. So taking them on a virtual field trip, um, you know, although it's usually a shortened version, right, five or 10 minutes out of a professional learning workshop rather than, um, you know, the entire 30 or 40 minute uh, experience that students would have, or letting them play a game of mystery Skype and then see around a community. Um, those are the kinds of things that we've done with students and that has opened their eyes. And, and you know, you said this so well in one of our past episodes, teachers need to experience what it's like for students before they can do it for students. Um, and I've tried to give those kinds of, uh, you know, those kinds of learning opportunities to the teachers that I've worked with. Yeah, I, I do believe teachers have to look at the world through the lens of a student. We talk about that. If you are going to do, um, you know, lesson plan design, you need to look at your lesson plan through, through the eyes of a student, but to experience your own learning as an adult learner, what we think is right for kids is still right for any learner. Yeah. So I, I really have found that this has been a powerful way to have deeper, richer conversations with teachers, um, especially if we're talking about innovative schools. If you talk to a place that's doing project-based learning, K-12, or if you're talking to somebody like our friend Sean in, in England who's got the democratic school, it's fascinating. And I feel like I'm a better teacher after talking to these people. Yeah, no doubt. We, we grow when we move outside our, our comfort zone. And when you talk to teachers who are doing things that are radically different than you are, it forces you to examine what you're doing in your classroom and to find the best parts of what they're doing and how it fits with your students and to embrace that yourself. And I've seen that, you know, the, the larger my teacher network has, has gotten, uh, the more uncomfortable I've gotten at times and the more it's forced me to do better things for my own students. I would agree with that. Um, and I think some of it, you talked about your region also is, leaves you biased because it's what we're exposed to is not the same exposure right. of things that other people in parts of the different areas of the world have. Um, and when you stop and listen to people who are having different experiences from you, it really does put you in a space of stretching your mind and stretching your heart just a little bit as well. And then you have a chance to step out of your own situation and look in with the new knowledge and realize, wow, there's some more things I need to be doing for my students that I didn't realize so that they are better prepared as human citizens. So we're running out of time. We're going a little bit long and you and I could talk about this for hours. We could go on <laughs> just for hours and I would love it. Um, but eventually we have to wrap up this podcast. So um, I'm going to ask you and you can feel free to ask me right back afterwards, but in one or two sentences, 
how would you change our education system to make the world a better place? I would provide more opportunities for teachers to learn creatively and passionately through their own teacher experiences of field trips or talking with other people so that they can take this new knowledge to inspire their students. And Mike, in one or two sentences, what would you do? I believe we need to look at the way that we use technology and ensure that we are finding the balance between technological innovation and keeping our schools relevant to the technology that's outside them and keeping education rooted in the most important aspects of what, it, what it's always been rooted in, and that is humanity and empathy and compassion. And if we can find ways to use technology to help kids become more compassionate and to find a shared humanity with others, then our future society is gonna be in pretty good shape. Thank you for joining us today. Please visit our website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, E-D, the number four, betterworld.com for show notes and to learn more about inviting Mike and I to lead a workshop for your teachers. And don't forget to check the other podcast-related goodies. We wanna thank all of you who are listening today and all of you who have reached out on Twitter and Facebook to contact us and tell us how much you love the show. Credit for music on today's show goes to Midair Machine. Join us next week when we talk with Scott Bedley, founder of Global School Playday, an event that is restoring unstructured play to a generation of kids. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and that it gave you some new ideas and perspectives. Through education and action, we can create a better world. Until we're together again, continue to dream big. And affect positive change. <laughs>